Grace, mercy, and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you might be familiar with the, the name Nick Walenda. For those of you who are not, uh, Nick Walenda is a, a very accomplished acrobat and tightrope walker who has something like a, a dozen Guinness World Records to his name. He's known for, example, for crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope, 1,800 feet across the mist from the U.S. to Canada. He one time also walked over the bubbling lava of an active volcano in Nicaragua. He had to wear a gas mask because of all the, the noxious fumes and, and heat that the, the volcano was spewing upward at him. I think maybe most impressive, though, was this one, because he did it without any kind of safety net or harness or tether. A quarter mile across a segment of the Grand Canyon, buffeted by high winds with the Colorado River 1,500 feet below him. And this is all to say nothing of the other many incredible and often death-defying acrobatic stunts that, that Nick Walenda has accomplished during his lifetime. Uh, now, when, when he goes and, and, and he performs one of these stunts, he gets massive crowds. Thousands and thousands of people show up to watch him to say nothing of the maybe millions that are watching him on the televised broadcast of these things, right? Discovery Channel, ABC, they've all covered the things that Nick Walenda has done. People show up to cheer him on and, and to praise him for these incredible death-defying stunts that he performs. Well, 2,000 years ago, in the tiny country of Israel, a man named Jesus stepped out from the shadows of obscurity into the public light. And he too revealed himself through his authoritative teachings and his powerful miracles to be somebody worth the attention and praise of the people. And not just of his contemporaries, but even of you and me living two millennia after him. And yet there's a big difference between somebody like Nick Walenda and Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, there are a lot of differences, but I've never seen Nick invite anybody from the crowd to join him in his stunts, to take some of that glory for themselves, right? And even if he did, you wouldn't go. And yet when Jesus appears as he reveals himself to be God's own son, he also invites you and me to join him in discipleship, to accompany him, to follow him, even into glory of our own. Today, in the first message of this series, we are joining Jesus at the Jordan River on the eastern border of Israel, on the eastern border of Israel. And we are going to witness what is, even to many longtime Christians, a somewhat confusing account, not necessarily in the details, but in its purpose, its point. And yet as we go through this story and walk through these verses, there are a couple of questions that we need to answer as we go, okay? We're going to be asking the questions, who am I and who is Jesus? 
Now, our story today from Mark 1 starts not with Jesus himself, but actually with Jesus' cousin, a man named John the Baptist. In the Old Testament, both Isaiah and Malachi had prophesied that this one would come to serve as the forerunner for the Messiah himself. And that's where we pick things up then in Mark 1 verse 4. We'll read just a couple of verses here. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So if you can imagine the scene here, you have all these people that are flooding out into these wild areas around the Jordan River to see this prophet that has arrived on the scene after like a 400-year silence. And by that I mean, for 400 years since the time of Malachi, God did not send any of these prophets to Israel. And now he's here, John. And people are intrigued. They want to go and see him. And so they're coming out there in droves. People who come from all different kinds of walks of life. There are Pharisees, those of the religious elite class in Israel. And they stood next to the known sinners, the the lowlifes of Jewish society. There were zealots and soldiers and fishermen. And yet, John treats all of these people in common. He doesn't distinguish one from the next as he goes about his important work. And what is it John the Baptist does? He baptizes, washing those who will be washed in the Jordan River. Now here, as we see that baptism in verse 4, we see two key words connected with that baptism that's well worth our zeroing in on today. The first is that word repentance. Now that word repentance uh, on a surface level might seem like kind of a small or trifling matter, but it's actually very far from. You see, when we try to answer that first question, who am I? From our own standpoint, our own vantage point of things, we'll often answer it in, in ways like this, saying like, well, I know that I'm flawed, I know that I'm human, but I'm a generally decent person, right? I, I try to be nice to people, I try to obey the rules, etc. But when we answer that question from God's standpoint, as he reveals it to us in Scripture, we learn something very different about ourselves. I'm not just flawed. I'm a spiritual train wreck. I'm not the generally obedient, decent person I think I am. No, I am someone who has not pleased God. Not with my life, not with my words, not with my attitudes. And so my sinful nature, quite frankly, wants nothing to do with baptism. At least this this whole true baptism that John was advocating for and preaching, right? To admit not only that I have done wrong, but that I am wrong, that I am corrupted through and through, is the last thing that we want to do. Even if I might be willing to concede that this or that decision was maybe not the, the, the best one, maybe what wasn't the wisest choice, 
there are still always those, those certain little pet sins that, that I am going to insist I hold on to, right? Insisting on them as my right. I'll look for any excuse or justification that I can find in order to hang on to them, to keep them as a part of my life and a part of my heart. But the repentance that we find in John's baptism and in his preaching is no such trifling matter. He's not calling on people to go through some motions of repentance once a week at church, giving it some cursory acknowledgement as we half-heartedly mumble our way through a confession of sins or something like that. No, this baptism is a repudiating of the whole self, of everything in me and of me, which stands in contradiction to God's desires and God's decrees for the people that he has formed. Not hanging on to this little vice or, or, or that little uh, self in, selfish indulgence as my right. This repentance is a complete turning away from all of it. And yet, whenever we turn away from something, we must also, by necessity, turn to something else. And here in John's baptism of repentance, it's a turning away from that, that evil that God says he hates to what? To that forgiveness of sins, right? That's what we also find in baptism. It's this washing away of all that foulness of my natural born self to stand pure and clean again. But we have to ask the question, where does all the power come from to do this? Sure, water can wash dirt away from my body, but how can water wash guilt away from my soul? Does, does John the Baptist himself have the power to cleanse a guilty conscience? Does he have the right to prescribe a ritual like baptism? Just wash with a little bit of water and then, hey, poof, you're good with God. But well, we also need to move on in these verses, okay? Because John is not the only important person that we find here at the Jordan River. So we'll move on with verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Yes, John was certainly an intriguing figure. It's why so many people were coming out there to see him. His, his clothing, his, his demeanor resembled that of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, which is why many of the people actually wondered whether he might be John, or why he might be Elijah himself reincarnated. And yet John was very clear in the message that he brought them. Yes, the people maybe came to see him, but they didn't stop at John, and he made sure of that. He made sure that the people knew he was just a forerunner, that he was lowlier than even the lowliest of shoe-tying servants compared to the one who was coming. And it is that one whom we now see in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Now to those people who were hanging around at the Jordan River that day, Jesus would have just looked like another face in the crowd with nothing special to distinguish him from anybody else around him. But when they all went down into the Jordan River to be baptized, they came out, toweled off, and went on their way. When Jesus is baptized, something very amazing and utterly unique happens. And after this, Jesus would never be just another face in the crowd again. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, I don't know what it looks like when heaven is torn open. I imagine that might have caught the attention of one or two. If not, then the dove flying down, landing on Jesus, accompanied by that voice with its message, certainly did. But try to put this into the context of Jesus' life. At Christmas, at Jesus' birth, heaven announced to a few shepherds out in the fields who this child was that was born in Bethlehem. And then, yes, a few days later, God revealed to Simeon and Anna in the temple that the, the son of Mary and Joseph was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And then God also provided a star for a few wise men, which led them to Jesus' side. But then for almost three decades, nothing. Radio silence. Jesus grew up among the other children of Nazareth. He ate, he slept, he probably did his chores and studied, appearing no different than anybody else around him. Until here, at the Jordan River, God reveals Jesus to be very different from the rest of the people being baptized there. Very different than sinful people like you and me who might be baptized today. Who is this Jesus? Jesus is the son who does what pleases his father. But that's precisely one of the reasons why this account sort of confuses a lot of people. Because why then would Jesus come to be baptized like this? In fact, John the Baptist himself expresses a good deal of skepticism in Matthew's recounting of these events. He, asks, he says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me, right? If baptism is about repentance and forgiveness, and if Jesus is the one, the only one, who actually does what pleases the Father, then what's the point of his baptism? Now, in Matthew, Jesus gives a sort of cryptic response to John's question. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In layman's terms, John, just trust me, this is something I have to do. But Jesus' baptism, Baptism really begins to make a lot of sense when we look at something else that John the Baptist said after these events took place. In the Gospel of John, okay, so written by Jesus' disciple John, not to be confused with John the Baptist, 
he no longer identifies himself as the forerunner to some nameless, faceless Messiah who was yet to come. No, at that time, John pointed the people to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in calling Jesus that Lamb of God, John was making good use of the Jews' own knowledge of their own national history, as well as the, the current religious system in which they lived. Because they had all seen it. That lamb of sacrifice, the lamb upon whom was laid all the sins of the people, the lamb that was slaughtered, the lamb that was burned up on the altar throughout all those years of Israel's history and the thousands and thousands of lambs that were slain, what was God doing? He was providing a shadow, pointing the people ahead to the one, the Lamb of God, who would come and who would actually bear all those sins of all those people. John, the last of the old prophets, is thus speaking a message loud and clear to the people. He's here. The one on whom God the Father lays all your sins and all my sins and all the sins of this whole rotten world is here. However you have failed God or failed the people next to you, whatever struggles or addictions or unrighteousness you bring with you, like iron filings to a magnet, all your sin and your entire sinful self sticks to this lamb, Jesus. He's the one who suffers for it. He's the one who dies for it. He is the one who lets you walk away guilt-free in the eyes of the Father. Who is Jesus? He is the righteous Son who bears all the sin of all the unrighteous. And so when this Lamb, this Son, to whom clings all this world's sin, walks down into the Jordan River to be baptized by John, he sends this clear message to you and me and to all those baptized into his name today. All your filth is now washed away. You stand forgiven, pure, holy, because you have been baptized into me. My name, my obedience, my righteousness. And so what does that mean for you and me? It means that when we ask this question, who am I? We can now give a very different answer than that old one. Who am I? I am a loved son. I am a loved daughter of my father. Because through faith, through baptism, I am joined together with Jesus. Now over the next handful of weeks, 
we'll have plenty of opportunity to, to stare with awe again at this Jesus as he reveals himself to be that long-awaited Messiah, not just of the, the, the people of Israel, but of the whole world. We'll see more of his power on display to, to heal all that's been broken by sin and to restore our fallen world. Most importantly, we'll see our Father's love for us in him as he calls us to join him in discipleship and ultimately into that glory which he has in store for all his people. For now, let's close today's message with a prayer. Father of heavenly light, thank you for revealing your son Jesus to shine in the darkness of our sin-broken world. We especially praise and thank you for drawing us to him by the power of the Holy Spirit over us and in us. By your grace, may we never give ourselves over to sin, but always remembering our baptisms and the new life to which we have been called, lead us daily to repentance. When Satan tries to plague us with guilt, lead us always to trust in the blood of our Lamb, where we find full and free forgiveness from every sin. We pray these things in that Lamb's name. Amen. Amen.